It's on page 634 in mine. Doesn't really help you out, but uh, <laughs> Nehemiah is where we're going to be camped out. I want to ask you a question, and I want you to think about this question as we begin, and that is, what are the characteristics of a godly leader? What does a godly leader do? What are they like? How does a godly leader restore, defend, and rebuild? I want you to be mulling around those questions as we proceed through the text today. Today we're launching into a new series, walking through the book of Isaiah, which means this is going to be an intro sermon, but we're going to do an intro to the book, very short intro, and then I'm going to cover the first two chapters of the book today uh, with doing history or narrative or some of those styles of literature that we find in certain parts of the Bible. Uh, sometimes we have to take larger chunks so that we get the context and get everything uh, making sense. Often this book is studied in combination with the book of Ezra. So a lot of times if you, if you go find a book on Nehemiah, a lot of times it'll be Ezra and Nehemiah. A lot of the commentaries are Ezra and Nehemiah together. Not just because they appear next to each other, but because uh, this book, Nehemiah, originally is understood to have been part two of Ezra. And both of these books, this is, in, in other words, this was like the second half of the book of Ezra before it was split out. And this, uh, these two books cover one century of history. Now I'm going to get into some dates here, but hang on, okay? So they cover about one century of history from 539 B.C. to 433 B.C. Now the Judeans had been exiled to Babylon. And the prophets had foretold that this would happen. But they had continued in their sin against the Lord, and they had a series of kings, some good and some not so good. And eventually they were defeated and carted off to Babylon, away from their home, in exile. Now the story of exile, the idea of exile, really tracks throughout the entirety of Scripture. In the very beginning, man, right, was created and put in the garden. And then he sinned. And was exiled out of the garden. So you see this you see this theme of being away from our one true home running throughout the Bible. And so I want you to hold on to that throughout this series as well. So here we have the Israelites, the Judeans, in exile in Babylon. And Ezra tells of the first wave of exiles who returned to Judah under King Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple. This was from 539 to 516 BC. I told you we're going to do some dates here. Then the second wave returns with Ezra more than 50 years later, around 458 B.C. Nehemiah then rebuilds the wall a little more than 10 years later, from 445 to 433 B.C. Now, if you notice, we're going backwards in numbers because we're counting down to the birth of Christ. The whole book of Nehemiah takes place over approximately 13 years. Now, you need to understand in some of these ancient dates, there's wiggle room on either side. So three to nine months of wiggle room is pretty typical. So you may read one that has, you know, one more year on this side or one more on this side. So here is Nehemiah. The Judeans were coming back to resettle, rebuild, and we find later prepare to fight. The leaders in both of these books of Ezra and Nehemiah are in the foreground of the story. So you have the priests who work in the temple and teach God's law. So we've got Ezra, and then we've got Nehemiah, the governor, the guy that was the strategic planner, the leader. The question that I came upon in my study was this. 
what kind of leadership does the Bible hold up or present to us as exemplary leadership? I want you to think on that throughout this book as we begin with Nehemiah chapter 1. And we're going to read verses 1 through 11 of chapter 1. We're going to talk about it, and then I'm going to go on and we'll get to the the rest of the passage. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant here in the province who had, who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask God to help us understand and apply it to our lives. Jesus, as we come. Help us see you in your word. Help us understand what it means. And help us to apply it to our lives. This is your word, O God. As it does its work of convicting us, of teaching us, of instructing us, bring us quickly to a place of repentance for sin that we see in our lives. Bring us quickly to a place of full surrender to what we see in your word. May I decrease and you increase. Be big here, Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen. First point we come to about a godly leader. I asked what uh, what does a godly leader do? What does exemplary biblical leadership look like? The first one is a godly leader is concerned for the glory of God and God's people. We see that in Nehemiah. A godly leader who is concerned for the glory of God in God's people. How we get to some of the dates that I gave you earlier. How do we get there? Well, here's a little bit of how they figure dates uh, when you go through history and use the Bible and the narratives in the Bible, the history given in the Bible to set dates. In the month of Chislev, it says, which that corresponds with what we know as November, December time. So Artaxerxes began his reign in 465 BC. So in keeping with that timing, the 20th year of his reign would have been 
445 B.C. And this takes place in Susa, right? Now, Susa was the winter residence of the king of Persia. So the king is doing his winter there. Nehemiah's there, and Hananiah arrives from Judah. Now, Nehemiah asks how things are going in Jerusalem, how things are with the remnant of Jews who survived the exile, and he gets news. But the news is not good. It's not good news when... Uh, we told Javen that he was going to have a second little brother when we found out we were pregnant with Asher. My mom was on the phone with him, and she said something like, hey, I hear you have some news, Javen. And six-year-old Javen says, so you need to know he was not very thrilled with this news. And he says, there's news, Mama, but it's not good. (laughs) And so... He gets the news from Hananiah, and it's not good news. Hananiah speaks of great trouble and shame on the people. The walls of Jerusalem were broken down. The gates had been burned with fire. And this is hard news for Nehemiah to hear. So I want you to look at what his response is in verse 4. He gets this bad news about what has happened to the city of God's people, and here's what happens in verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, no, oh, stop, I want you to see, as soon as I heard these words, this was his reaction to it. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Don't let it slip by you this morning how passionate Nehemiah was for God's kingdom. He's brokenhearted that the advance of God's people is halted. When we are loving God and seeking the advance of his kingdom and his glory, we will feel sorrow when it gets slowed or stopped like this. And he weeps and mourns for days. He then moves forward in fasting and prayer. It says continued. This is He's keeping going in fasting and praying. He turns to discipline and diligence in continuing to seek the Lord. This is a man who's already deeply in love with the Lord and seeking his glory. So when this news comes, it drove him deeper into his devotion to the Lord. It made me wonder when the last time was that we were driven to weeping and mourning and prayer to see God's glory advance in our community. We pray for the advance of God's kingdom here in Dixon when we're together at church? How many of us pray for it when we're apart? How many of us would mourn and weep that we don't see the kingdom advance more here where we live? So a godly leader is concerned for the glory of God and God's people. Secondly, a godly leader is prayerful. This is intrinsically connected with the first point. A godly leader is prayerful. We have here recorded Nehemiah's prayer to the Lord. And the statements that he makes about God, he starts out with three statements about God in the beginning of that prayer. And they're informed by scripture. Nehemiah knew God's word. And his strength of character, so when we look at Nehemiah, we're like, that's a man of strong character. His strength of character was built, it's an outcome of his study of God's word. 
He knew God's word and knew that he could trust God to answer his prayers because he knew from God's word what God had promised to do. So when he was praying, he's praying that God will do what God promised he would do. And he knows that God will do it because God promised he would do it in his word. And he knows that because he studied the word. Now I know that sounds like a lot of back and forth, but that's what I see there. This prayer that he prays for God to restore, to fulfill the covenant, to remember the covenant he has with his people, this prayer is based on the biblical teaching we find in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 25 through 31. We're not going to go there right now, but if you want to jot that down, it's Deuteronomy 4, 25 through 31. That's an example of this kind of teaching that he's praying. You can find examples other places. But here was Nehemiah in the midst of the exile living away from his true home, living through what had been prophesied. The people had sinned, and they were exiled. He was hoping now to experience what God promised would come after the exile. He confesses, he prays and confesses sin, and he asks God to hear the confession of his sin. Many times we go to God and... um, We want him to do what we want him to do to get us out of a situation that doesn't make us very happy, but yet we're not willing to confess where we've sinned. We want to get the good parts about what God has promised without giving up our temporary pleasures and the things that uh, are our habitual pet sins. So he asked God God to hear the confession of his sin. And he calls on God to remember the covenant he made with his people. This is, friends, this is just praying scripture. He knew scripture and he prayed scripture. It's not, hear this, because this gets sideways in some churches. It's not trying to hold God hostage or like he's trying to trick God into doing something that you feel that he owes you. This is not that. I heard one prosperity gospel preacher on a video once say it's good to remind God or, or in one of the books it's good to remind God everything you've done as if he owes you something that's not what this is this is praying scripture praying the promises of God and trusting that God will forgive when we repent that God will restore that he will do the things that he said he would do for them for his people for Israel in this case. So he calls on God to remember the covenant he'd made with his people. He's praying the promises that God had made in his word because he knows what God had promised his people. And at the end of chapter 1, there's there's this prayer and it's intense, right? And you're like, wow, this is like intense. This guy's praying, he's he's weeping, he's mourning, he's in this deep prayer. And then at the end there's this little statement this little statement, now I was cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah reveals the position that he held in Persia. He was a highly placed official. He was cupbearer to the king. That meant that he likely took a taste of everything that went before the king drank it. One of the fears of kings in that day was being poisoned. I don't know if you know that or not. 
So they would have a cupbearer who would try everything first so the king didn't die. And if the, if the wine or whatever in the cup was poison, well, you'd need a new cupbearer. Because he'd drink it and he'd go and then the king would know, oh, that's poison, don't drink it. According to history, the cupbearers of the Persians and the Medes, so that would have been where, we, where they were, would take wine from the vessel into the cup. So he'd go to the, the vessel, the jar, it was kept the wine, whatever it was, would get it in the cup. And then they would pour some of it into their left hand and kind of sup it up. And then if they didn't die, they'd take it to the king on three fingers, they said. I don't know how that works, but anyway, they'd take it to the king on three fingers. So Nehemiah had a position where he was before the king on a regular basis. He was in front of the king. The king trusted him because, uh, well, he was around him all the time. And uh, obviously, Nehemiah was, his life was on the line now by command, of course, of his position. His life was always on the line to make sure the king didn't die. This is important for what comes next. Let's continue to read in chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad? When the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber and make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. So a godly leader is concerned for the glory of God and God's people. A godly leader is a prayerful leader. And third, a godly leader acts. A godly leader acts. That's A-C-T-S, not A-X-E. Uh, I know we're talking about timber, so it can be confusing. A godly leader takes action. Nehemiah had an opportunity here, and he acted upon it. The king wanted to know why he was so sad, so he answers... And the king says, what are you requesting? Now, true to his character, I don't know if you caught this. I don't know if you caught this. But in verse 4, the king asks him, what are you requesting? And right after it, that it says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. And then he says his answer to the king. Now, this wouldn't have been a long, drawn-out prayer like before. It probably wasn't out loud. 
I saw this described by one commentator as, or one pastor as, one of those arrow prayers that you shoot up to the Lord before you have to speak, asking for strength, asking for courage, asking for the words for what to say. One of the, you know, those arrow prayers. Something's about to happen. Someone is before you. Someone stops in the church office in my account. Or somebody is, you're talking to somebody at work and they start talking about God and you pray real quick, God, give me the words to say. You know, and you don't say it out loud, but it's one of those quick. So, but here's the deal. That is true to Nehemiah's character. He's going to answer the king. What are you requesting? This is important because when you're before the king, your life is always in danger. And he's going to suggest that he who is there, who is the cupbearer to the king, who serves the king all the time, is there with him, that he be allowed to leave and go back to where he was exiled from and rebuild it. So this godly leader prays and answers the king. And the king grants him permission to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls. I want you to see that he'd thought this through. This wasn't a spot-of-the-moment request. He'd thought through what he needed. He asks for these letters so that he can have safe passage through the other territory, so that he can have timber to do the work. He's thought through what needs to be built, that he's going to need supplies. He's, he's planned this out. So not only does a godly leader act, but he plans his action. I want you to see that this is not a reaction, but it's a strategy, or a strategery, if you will. It's a strategy to see God's glory advance in his people. And in the next section, in verses 9 through 20, we continue to see Nehemiah planning and acting. So let's read the rest of it together, beginning in verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. I want to stop right there for a minute. So he goes out and inspects everything, walks, you know, rides around, inspects it, and he has not told the people that are going to be expected to do the work, nor the officials and the nobles, and the priests, all those people. He hasn't told them yet. So let's pick it back up. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. 
And when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Nehemiah had a vision for what to do. He had a plan. He had a strategy. He, he set to work in acting the plan. The thing that God had set on his heart, he inspected, he looked at what needed to be done. Some of us talk a really good game. We see what needs to be done, we tell everyone about it, but when it comes to putting the work in to get it done, we fall short. Nehemiah is the opposite of a Monday morning quarterback. Do you guys know what a Monday morning quarterback is? Monday, there'll be plenty of them tomorrow, okay? I don't know if you heard, there's a, little, there's a little football game tonight, the Super Bowl, okay? If you're not a football fan, sorry, just sit tight, okay? Um, so there's a, there's a football game tonight. There's two teams playing. I'm a Raiders fan, so I don't care who wins. Uh, if both teams could lose, that'd be great because, you know, can't, can't root for the Chiefs and not a big Eagles fan. So anyway, that doesn't have anything to do with the sermon. But tomorrow morning, somebody's going to be Super Bowl champion. Somebody's going to be the loser, right? Only one team walks away happy at the end of a season, right? There's going to be people tomorrow morning. You just have to turn on the TV. You'll see it. And they're going to say what the losing quarterback should have done or what that linebacker should have done or what that guy should have done because it's Monday morning. And none of those people could go out there right now, or most of them could not go out there and do that thing. But they can talk it up really well. Nehemiah is the opposite of that. Not only does he tell the people, here's what we're going to do, here's how we're going to do it. He, he does it. He sets them to work. He inspires them. I want to look at two things that he does. Number one, inspection. He goes out, he inspects the site, gets eyes on it, checks out what needs to be done, sees the work ahead, realizes, hey, I can't do this alone. So he talks to the people and he gets them to follow him to rebuild and restore the city of God's people. So we got inspection and then inspiration. He inspires people to follow him. The people probably wanted their city rebuilt. But here was Nehemiah Abel, who had a plan, who knew what needed to be done. And the people's response? They said, let us rise up and build. Let us rise up and build. Now, lest you think this is all good feeling, not everyone in the story was excited for the city walls to be rebuilt. We see the fourth point that I want to point out here is that a godly leader faces opposition. A godly leader who's following God, who's seeking for the glory of God's people, who's prayerful, who acts will face opposition, and Nehemiah faces opposition. In chapter 2, we meet these guys, Sanballat and Tobiah. The text tells us that they were greatly displeased that someone was seeking the welfare of Israel. These guys are just upset that someone wants good for the people of Israel. And they seem to want to assert their authority in Judah. These Sumerians are going to come back up in the coming weeks. But for now, they allege that Nehemiah is doing uh, something that's rebelling against the king. 
This was a serious accusation. And the king, Artaxerxes, had believed this accusation in the past. If you were to flip back and read in Ezra 4, you would find that he had heard something like this before and believed it. So now, though, it's not just Sanballat and Tobiah. They have this guy, Geshem the Arab, with them. And they jeered and despised the Israelites. So you've got an opposing force opposing Nehemiah, doing the will of God, rebuilding the temple or rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. What was Nehemiah's response to this opposition? So you got a godly leader. He's bathed in prayer, he knows the word. What's his response to the opposition to his actions? Well, chapter 2 verse 20 we see it. When I replied, then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Even though Nehemiah knows the king is on his side and has sent him back here, he doesn't simply trust the king. His trust is in the God of heaven who is strong and able to save. As I was reading that and preparing, it reminded me of David facing Goliath. David, who, when he faced Goliath, didn't trust in armor or weapons, but trusted in God to deliver Goliath into his hands, just as he had delivered the lion and the bear when David was herding sheep. Nehemiah's trust was not in the king's favor or military power or his political position. His trust was in God and God's word and God's promises that God was stronger we sang that earlier. So what do, like, how do we kind of move towards summing and wrapping that up? Well, Nehemiah kept the goal in sight. He wanted God's glory in the restoration of the city of God's people. So he prayed, he acted, and he pursued the reclaiming of glory for God. And he faced opposition in that. And there's so many times along the way where... I think we, facing those same things, would sometimes give up or would turn away from the task. But he kept the goal in sight. How many times do churches, have I seen churches, who over the years have lost track of the goal? They've lost track of the end point and they've gotten off, off track. Nehemiah wanted God's glory, the restoration of the city of God's people. So he prayed, he acted, he pursued, and yes, he faced opposition. As I was preparing this message, I thought about the main points about godly leaders as I was reminded of those things of godly leaders seeking God's glory in God's people, godly leader being prayerful, uh, godly leader acting, godly leader facing opposition. And I was reminded that we see those things in Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry. Jesus was concerned for the glory of God. John 17, 4 says, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus was prayerful. He would get away and pray, spent time with his father. Luke 6, 12 through 13. In, the, in these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. 
He acted for the glory of God and advancement of the kingdom. So we see Jesus acting. Eight, uh, John 8, 50. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Jesus also most certainly faced opposition. He faced opposition from the religious leaders, from the government leaders, and from the people. You know, his confrontations with the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, confrontations with the government, Pontius Pilate, anybody, and the people who opposed him. He would give a hard teaching and people would walk away and abandon him. But Jesus was willing to give his life to accomplish God's mission for him. And the result of that is better than a rebuilt wall. The outcome is God being glorified in the rescue of souls from certain judgment. Our souls. All during his earthly human life, Jesus lived perfectly and without sin. And he perfectly fulfilled all the commandments in our place because we could not do it. And he gave that perfect life on a cross, a criminal's cross, even though he didn't deserve to be there. Also in our place for our sin, as the perfect once and for all sacrifice for our sin. He stood in our place. He took the wrath of God for our sin upon himself. And those who opposed him thought they had won. You get that? The people who were against Jesus thought, ah, he's dead, it's over. He was laid in a grave. It was sealed. Big stone rolled in front of it. But three days later, he arose. He rose to life by the power of God that, that proves he is worth it. It proves that God beat death, that the sacrifice for our sin, for your sin, was accepted. It, it worked. We can have life instead of death if we trust Jesus. So repent of your sins and believe this good news. We all want to be godly leaders, right? We want to be godly leaders in our home. We want to be godly leaders, at, some of us leaders at church, godly leaders in our workplace. We will mess that up. So it's not about being perfect and doing those things perfectly. It is about running to Jesus for forgiveness because he's the only one who can do those things perfectly. We talk about Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a sinner like you and me. He was just a sinner who was dedicated to God's word and God's glory and the restoration of God's people. And trusted in that promised savior that was coming. So what about you and me? What's our concern here? How do we become godly leaders for the kingdom? So I'm going to give you four challenges this morning. And if the musicians want to start making their way up, that's fine. But I want to give you four challenges this morning. First, we must belong to Jesus before any of this else, any else of this is going to matter. So repent of your sin and believe the good news that I just shared. Trust Jesus for salvation. Secondly, seek the glory of God in Dixon in our families, in our church, and in the community around us. Pray for it. Love it. Live for it. Weep for it. Ask God to bring a revival. And if he brings it down the street, rejoice. If he brings it in your house, rejoice. That's why we pray for other churches. 
because we want revival. And if it comes to another church, awesome, we want it. So seek the glory of God in Dixon. Pray for it. We see Nehemiah pray in the scripture. Pray the scriptures over Dixon. Third, act for God's glory. If you know Jesus and are his follower, you have a ministry. You have a mission. Get on it. Pray and act. Your prayers, like Nehemiah, should be informed by the word of God. Your actions should be consistent with the word of God. You're not acting out there on your own, but you are working according to God's word and will for God's glory and the advancement of his kingdom. And fourth, you're going to face opposition. I know. I know this isn't like, hey, y'all come, exciting. This is the truth. You will face opposition. When you face opposition, dive deeper into your trust of the Lord. I said when, not if. You will face opposition if you work for the glory of God. We must persevere and trust that God wins in the end. We are not responsible for the outcome. We are responsible to be faithful and obedient, much like the Israelites had been exiled. We are exiled in a fallen world away from our true home in heaven. We should long for restoration and work to see those around us restored to right relationship with the Lord. So persevere in faith and complete the work set before us. The challenge for you today is, will you? Will you? In the last four years, this church, this, isn't, this is not like a big secret, okay? But in the last four years, this church has gone through a lot of upheaval, okay? Uh, when I arrived two and a half years ago, can't believe it's been that long, but two and a half years ago when I arrived, many people felt like the walls had been knocked down and the gates had been burned with fire. Metaphorically speaking, of course. But God is faithful. And every day, over and over again, he has shown us that. So let's arise and build. Let's arise and and build. Let's dedicate ourselves individually and as a church to the glory of God in Dixon, to seeing people rescued from eternity, separated from God in hell, to see marriages rescued, to see people uh, kick drug habits because they give their life over to Jesus instead of addiction. Let's arise and build. Not for our glory, not for our fame, not for our reputation for the glory of Jesus Christ in Dixon and in our area. Will you commit to those four things? Will you commit to rising and building on his sure foundation? Would you stand with me, please? I'm going to close with a word of prayer and then we're going to sing a final song. If the Lord is moving in your heart today as he has been mine, then I want to just invite you during this time to respond in your heart to what the Lord has said in his word. 
Some of you may have felt like, man, that is where I'm at. Let's go. Some of you may have felt like, I need to repent. I've got some sin. I need to repent and confess it and move forward. Maybe something else is going on in your life. Maybe you're dealing with a relational issue. I don't know what all's going on in your life, but this is your time to respond to what God has said. I'm not going to call you up front or anything like that. Where you're standing, in your heart, you can respond to the word of God. As we sing this song, cry out to him. If you need to talk to somebody, I'll be around later. We've got deacons who will be around later. We've got other people who'd love to talk to you and, and share with you about the good news of Jesus. But when we hear God's word proclaimed, we will respond one of two ways. We'll either say yes and amen and be obedient and seek to apply that in our lives, or we'll ignore it, which is to say reject it. And very few of us would out and out probably reject these things because we don't want to be that guy that says, no, no, I'm not going to do that, God. But we will go out, just go through our regular motions of our daily life, and nothing will change because we don't take that to heart. It really is about where your heart is with the Lord. And so I want you to consider that as we sing this final song. God, as I come before you, uh, I don't deserve to stand here. Uh, you are so good to me, to call me into ministry, to place me in this church before these uh, just wonderful people. But God, I know you desire our obedience and our worship in every part of our life. And I know I get that wrong so much that I have my own sin that I have to repent of and deal with on a daily basis. It's only by your grace, Jesus, that any of us can stand here and worship you. It's only by your grace that we can work for your glory. It's only by your grace that we can do anything that matters in this world. Help us believe that and live our lives like we actually believe that. Move us to cry out to you for your glory to be displayed here in Dixon for our community to know you, Jesus. Rescue people as you do. You are a rescuer. Rescue us. Don't let us hold back anything from you, Jesus. Be glorified in